If you have a Bible nearby, let's turn together to the book of Mark, chapter 11. And as I've said, and we've been kind of singing along these lines, uh, today is not just another, you know, ordinary Sunday, for lack of a better term. Today is Palm Sunday, where we celebrate uh, the first in, in a series of events that are taking us toward Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And we, uh, on each day of this week, the scripture kind of lays out exactly what, what Jesus did on those days, where he went, um, the things that he taught, uh, the times when he was kind of withdrawn into himself a little bit as he prepared for this. But um, each day, uh, this coming week, something that we've done for a number of years is we put on Twitter and Facebook just kind of the, the events of each day. And then on starting Thursday night, uh, the approximate timeline of everything from the Passover meal and Lord's Supper into Jesus' arrest, uh, his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, the beginning of the crucifixion, his death, uh, his burial, those kinds of things. And so if you're a social media person in those two ways at least, uh, and you maybe want to follow along on Friday, um, it kind of has a way of, of uh, at least for me, keeping me tied to uh, the darkness of that day. And uh, this is that time of year where there's a lot of fun stuff happening, and uh, you know, there's, the weekends are kind of packed with things. We had an Easter egg hunt yesterday. That was, it was awesome, and just very grateful to our kids' ministry team for putting that on and for everyone who helped uh, that kind of stuff. There's just those kind of things happening this time of year, and um, it's, it would be easy to just kind of blast through this week, especially Good Friday, and then kind of act like that didn't happen because it's all about Easter Sunday, but... Without Good Friday, Easter Sunday is not really Easter Sunday. And so um, tying us to those things is very important. Uh, on Friday evening here in the auditorium, there will be a, a Good Friday worship service that will happen. Uh, from 5.30 to 6.30, we're just going to have the room open to come in and read and pray and just kind of meditate and just think on the events that you know, of, of the day. Uh, there's a, a reading guide that, that we'll have as a common option. So some people like to read through it and um, you know, kind of read a little bit, pray a little bit, that kind of stuff. Other people are like, just turn me loose, let me do my thing. Whatever you want to do from 5.30 to 6.30, uh, we'll be open here for that. And then at 6.30, there will be a communion service with a few songs, some readings, um, and the Lord's Supper and things like that. Uh, and it's a little bit later you know, than we do here. And... Um, some years it works out better than others, depending on daylight savings, but uh, we don't have any of the lights on. It's just kind of natural light, and the room gets darker and darker as the service, as the time goes, you know, and there's a lot of symbolism in that, a lot of meaning in that. So uh, if you've never been to our Good Friday service, I would encourage you to really, really consider it. Uh, some of you have never been. And I don't know, like, it's Friday, it's, it's kind of, you know, sometimes it's tough to get here because of work and family and the other things, and so I definitely understand that. But I would just encourage you to, to really consider carving out that time to be here. Um, and uh, it's, I don't know, it's just very special. And so we do have child care for that. It's not a very long period of time, but um, we have that covered, and we'd love to see you there. Um, 
But all these events of Passion Week, it kind of starts with the triumphal entry. And Mark 11 is one of the places where it's described. So let's read this together. Not together, I'll read it. (laughs) Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt who's tied up and on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say, the Lord has need of it, and he will send it, and we'll send it back here immediately. So they went, out, they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing? They told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the ground, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, and as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So, what is the significance of this? Uh, If you have grown up in church or around church or whatever, um, you maybe have been in services on Palm Sunday when there are palm branches and people bring them and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's... it may not still be on calendars, but it seems like growing up it was always, there was Easter Sunday, there was Good Friday, and Palm Sunday were always on the calendar. It's obviously really significant for some reason, but it seems like he just rode into town, uh, he you know, borrowed a donkey, rode into town, everybody freaked out, and then he left. You know, it just seems like, okay, what, you know, what's the big deal? Um, it, is, it has some really deep significance that we have to really go backwards into the Old Testament in order to understand. So flip backwards. Uh, just remember everything in the story, all, right, all the details. And then go back to Zechariah chapter 9. That's like almost toward the end of the Old Testament. One of the little books tucked away there at the end. Zechariah chapter 9. This is in a, a section of the Old Testament referred to as the Minor Prophets. Which doesn't mean that they're unimportant, it just means that they're, the amount of content is smaller. Um, and the minor prophets are uh, filled with imagery and uh, things that are sometimes hard to understand, some historical references. Um, just sometimes it's like really, they're really intense, you know, and so it's easy to stay away from them sometimes because it can be a little bit intimidating. Um, but here in chapter 9, there's this, like this prophecy that's tucked away. And so the, the storyline of the Old Testament is, you know, when uh, the God set apart a people for himself uh, in Israel, um, and he made promises to them, and there were a number of promises, all of them relational, and one of them is that he was going to send a, a redeemer. He would send a king who would be a shepherd and a king, and a savior. It would be everything that they would need him to be. He would come through this particular uh, family lineage, those kinds of things. And he attached 
throughout the Old Testament, God would just put in these little bits of, of detail that would happen. And so at Christmas time, like during Advent, we, we look at the prophecies in the Old Testament about him being born in Bethlehem and uh, being born of a virgin and all those kinds of things. And so, you know, God does that to, in this really obvious way where he's like, hey, he tells people this is going to happen. And when it does, you know that it's me, and uh, that means then I'm going to do this and this and this. And so there's this period of time where they're waiting, and they're looking for these things to happen, and they're looking, and they're looking, and they're looking, and then they happen, and they're like, oh, this is just like God said would happen. You know, that's what's supposed to be happening. And so these prophecies in the Old Testament uh, are fulfilled later on in the New Testament, and that's supposed to link those together, and everyone's supposed to say, this is obviously what God is doing, he's sending the Messiah. And all, the, all those dots should be connecting. But we know that historically that's not happened. That there are prophecies in the Old Testament that as Christians, we look at that and we say, that means Jesus is the f- fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy. Other people look at that and say, Jesus is not the fulfillment of that prophecy because of different things. And it's kind of just one of those, one of those things. Um, so we would interpret this as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, that is, should be triggering the memory of everyone who's watching. They should be like, wait a second. There's something in the, in, like, in the scriptures about this. This sounds really familiar. And the thing is, in Jewish culture, they, had every, they memorized everything. And so if you did not grow up in, in like first century Israel, this might, not, this might just seem like, dude just rode into town on an animal. It wasn't even his. You know? Why is everybody freaking out? But everybody's freaking out because they see him coming and they're like, wait a second. Zechariah chapter 9. Which they didn't have it divided up that way. You know what I'm saying. They would say, wait a minute, this, this is significant. God said this was going to happen. And now it's happening. And so what did God say was going to happen? Well, look in chapter 9, look at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from um, Ephraim. I always mess it up. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So if you grew up in a context where that was one of the prophecies that you were waiting to happen, and Jesus, the rabbi, who had healed and taught and, like, I mean, raised Lazarus from the dead, like those kinds of things, this dude comes in on a donkey, you know what you do? You take your your coat off and you lay it down in front of him. Because that's what you did when kings would come in. When a king would enter town... Everyone would do that and lay down, you know, almost like, a, like a, when a bride comes down the aisle and sometimes they roll that big thing down there. Uh, like, kind of like that, of like, oh no, he's too, he's too important to just come down the normal streets like us. You lay a path before him. And the palm branches, that, those were symbolic of Jewish uh, heritage and victory. It was this nationalistic symbol. And so they're waving these palm branches and they're, and they're screaming and they're shouting um, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That word Hosanna, as I said earlier, um, 
it not only means save us, rescue us, it also means look at, who, look at our rescuer. Our rescuer has come. Look at our Savior. He is here. And so these folks are, they're seeing this, they're responding, all these things are going on. And the thing is, Jesus was not the first one to do this. As you can imagine, just people being people, when you find out that there's a prophecy that everybody's like waiting for, it's easy to manipulate. So Jesus wasn't the first guy to be like, hey, I'm just going to jump on this donkey and then ride into town and everybody's going to freak out and then I'll be like the king. They'll think I'm the king. They had seen it before. They'd seen it afterwards. And they would turn on him in a few days. But in this moment, there were some significant things that were happening. This prophecy was being fulfilled. Jesus was pushing that first domino over, as I said earlier. He says, okay, I'm the one you've been waiting for. At various points in his ministry, sometimes he was, he was like very forthcoming about that, and other times uh, he wasn't. But here is a time he's like, I'm going public with this. I am, I am who these verses are about. And so when you look at 9 and 10, what does God want us to do? What does God want us to think about? On Palm Sunday, when we read that account, you know, it's not the first century. We aren't Israelites. We don't really, it doesn't evoke the things automatically that maybe it was supposed to. And so we turn to the scriptures and we look at what God is saying. So let's just walk through 9 and 10 for a few minutes. So the first thing that it says, and this is not going to be one of those sermons that has like a set number of points or anything like that. It's just going to be, let's just unpack this. And I'll go ahead and say this as well. There are some sermons that are very practical, you know. And sometimes it's a, it's a, there's a call to action, you know, and other times there's a warning. And you know, there's just different ways to do this. This is just one of those ones where we're just going to sit back and be like, God's pretty incredible. And I'm not trying to say that that isn't practical. It might be the most practical thing that we can do is just to stand in awe of who God is. When we look at verse 9, the first thing that he tells Jerusalem, he says, Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. All right, so this is, this is very poetic, all right? So by saying daughter, it just doesn't just mean like Jewish females or anything like that. Daughter is there's this term of, of endearment. It's, it's pointing to this family connection that God has to his people. Daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem is really just talking not about the city, but about the people of the city. Saying all of my children in Jerusalem... And then in the Bible, Jerusalem represents, it's really like this home base for all of God's people, you know. So really what this is saying is, all of my children rejoice greatly and shout aloud. That that should be what is, what is evoked in this moment. And that's probably why when we see Jesus coming through and the people were just losing their minds, because that's what they had been told. You have a reason to shout and to rejoice, and to take off your cloak, and to go find a palm branch or whatever, and cut it, and like, let's do this whole thing. Let's start screaming, Hosanna in the highest. That this should trigger something big in us. But why? Well, look at the next line. Behold, your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you. That's why there should be rejoicing 
and shouting. That's why the people of God should celebrate. That's why Palm Sunday should be like full of energy. Maybe not as much energy as Easter Sunday, but it should really, it, we should be pumped about this. Why? Because our King has come to us. Now think about it for a second. How many kings go to their people? I've never lived in, under a monarchy, so I don't really know. Um, I've seen a lot of movies. I don't see a lot of kings in movies going to the people just to go to them. I don't see our president, not necessarily this president, the president of the United States, ever just going to the people. Just like, hey, I just want to come see if you need anything. There's a natural disaster, they show up, but you always kind of feel like that's a, maybe a PR move, you know? You don't really have a situation where powerful people are going to those that they govern and they rule over. And God is saying, you need to get pumped up because your king is coming to you. And in the original language, that like coming to you, is, it, it carries with this, this idea of like he's coming like for you, like for your benefit. Like, it is for your good that your king is, like, headed your way. That he's coming to meet you. And that's one of the, the beautiful things about Christianity that, that I really think easily gets lost. Uh, a lot of times, like, within the church gets lost. But, but really gets lost, like, from the church to the world around us. That God... Wants to be with us. That he desires that. That he would come to us for our benefit. For our good. That he would leave heaven, come to earth. Everything about Advent you know, and Christmas and that kind of stuff. But that our king has come to us because we need him. You know, He's not come for a PR move. He's not come... For any sort of like weird reason. He's come because we needed rescue. Because our cries of Hosanna were heard by him. And so the reason like why this triumphal entry is such a big deal in the big picture is because Jesus is telling the world, like, okay, you need rescue, I'm here. You need a king, I'm the one that God has sent. And I have met you in your distress. I've met you in your pain. I've met you in your confusion. I've met you on your best day and your worst day. I've come to you. There's a lot of religions out there, and it's all about what you have to do to achieve enlightenment or in order to please God. or in toward, All these steps you have to take, like you're, you're constantly striving to get to Him. How do I get to Him? How do I get to Him? How do I get to Him? Christianity is... It's, the opposite. It's like, look what, look what God did to get to you. And so the triumphal entry should trigger that in us. To rejoice. To shout. Because our King has, is coming for us. That the beginning of this Passion Week is one where we should... We, we know what's ahead, but at the same time we're like, look at this rescue. Look at who has come for us. Look at what He's like. And then it goes on. So uh, it says, Behold, your king is coming to you, or coming for you, coming for your benefit, righteous 
and having salvation is he. Righteous, all right, that tells us that, um, that there's this kind of moral purity that's there, you know, that his, his actions are consistent with who he is, that inwardly and outwardly are the same, um, that the holiness of God is carried out in everything that he does. And so he comes in righteousness, which puts him in a different kind of category than the other people who had maybe tried to ride a donkey into Jerusalem and claimed to be the long-anticipated Messiah, shepherd king. You know, None of them had been righteous. None of them had, uh, had the motive. None of them were really the one. There was a manipulation there. There were all these other things going on. But for Jesus... When he told his disciples, go find this donkey, it's, it's time for me to ride into town. That was a, the actions of a holy and perfect king. Nothing weird about it. And because he was righteous, because he is sinless and pure, he's the only one that can bring salvation, right? Righteous and having salvation is he. He's the only one who could come in and really save. He's the only one that we could cry Hosanna to and could actually get to us to save us. I once heard, uh, or maybe I read it somewhere, uh, a pastor trying to, kind of explaining the word Hosanna. And he said, think of it like this. Um, someone who is drowning is like crying out for help. That's Hosanna in one sense. It's just, please, someone, save me. So the other sense of Hosanna is when that person sees the lifeguard swimming to them. And they're still crying, save me, save me, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And, but my rescuer is here, save me, save me. And you're like, I'm about to be saved, I'm being saved, I'm being saved. It's, it's kind of both of those things together. That all throughout the Old Testament, it was someone save us, save us. God, save us, send us someone, send us someone. And now, that someone is riding through the streets of Jerusalem on a donkey... And they just wanted to rejoice and shout because their king had come to them. And he was the righteous one, bringing salvation. And then it says that he was humble and mounted on a donkey. So humble, for, to think about the, the whole story, I mean, this is God himself. Riding on somebody else's donkey. Now, he made the donkey, right? It's his. I mean, he's like, hey, go, go borrow this donkey. If somebody gives you a hard time, tell them I'll bring it back. And he's sitting on other people's coats, made of material that he actually made. He's riding through a city where he created all the rocks that are making it up. He's making the dirt that's been packed down into pavement. They're waving branches at him that he made. There's people screaming at him. He made them. Knows each one of them. Knows everything about them. Loves them way more than they realize. He knows the ones who, are, who mean it when they're screaming this stuff. He knows the ones that will be screaming, crucifying him in a couple of days. He doesn't get caught up in the hype. I love that about Jesus. I mean, let's, let's think for a second what, a, what most people would do. Who leaves that party? You know? 
Who leaves a party where everybody's freaking out about you? He had been through a lot of ups and downs in his ministry. He'd been rejected. He was acquainted with grief and sorrow. He, he had been in the worst. And maybe now this is like the most, maybe this is like the, the most tempting, like he's like a celebrity in this moment. Who gets to the end of that ride and like looks around? That's what it said. He like looked at everything. And actually, he and he was, he was so sad. Because he knew, he knew that most of these people were missing it. Most of them were not, just were, they were not going to realize that he was the Messiah. And then he's like, okay, let's get out of here. Him and his disciples went back to Bethany. He didn't make a speech. You know, he didn't have a rally. He didn't, I don't know, he just, he didn't use it as a time to like, look at me, look at me, look at me. The prophecy said he's going to come into town on a donkey. I'm going to go into town on a donkey. All right, did that. All right, let's move on. That he was humble. This was God himself. Humble and mounted on a donkey. So why a donkey? Why not a horse? You know? Don't you think a king would ride into a town on a horse? I've never seen a king ride anything. But I, just in my mind, who is like, man, I can't wait till our king shows up on that donkey, you know? No, who says that? Nobody. Every movie I've ever seen, uh, all the, the artwork that you've ever seen that had any sort of war motif, it was always a big warrior on a horse. And in that day, that was the same thing. If a... Uh, if a king or a general came into to a, a, another territory on a horse, it was there to talk about war, to negotiate, to just whatever. That's, they, they were there for military purposes. If they came in on a donkey, that meant that they were there for, to make peace. And so you see, you see the, your rival coming toward you. If he's on a horse, you're like, all right, it's about to, it's about to be on. If he's coming on a donkey, you're like, okay, that's right. I'm about to surrender. About to negotiate. So the Messiah King comes in on a donkey, and that was the prophecy. They knew it. He's going to come in on a donkey because he's not about war. But you know what everyone in Jerusalem probably wanted him to do that day? They wanted him to be on a horse. They were probably trying to convince themselves. It's really a horse, right? It's a horse. But that's not what he's about. Look look at what it says. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. So the chariot, the horse, and the bow, those were the instruments of war during this time. Ephraim was known for like that the chariot that was associated with that uh, that tribe in northern Israel. The bow, the horse, like this was like whatever, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to break all that stuff. That the kingdom that he's bringing in is one that looks like the king. So what do we see about the king so far? Well, uh, one. The presence of the king evokes joy and gratitude and worship in his people. 
Why? Because he's the kind of king who comes to you. He's the kind of king that comes for you and for your benefit. He is a king who is righteous, that there is no impurity in him at all, that his governance is holy and perfect, and that he brings salvation to his people. He has come to save us from our sins, to bring what we really need to be saved from. He comes in humility, and he comes to bring peace. That the kingdom we are a part of is not a kingdom of war. It is one of shalom. Now, does that mean the absence of conflict? In, in part, that's part of it, yeah. It also means that he's come to bring a kingdom of peace that puts us in sync with God the Father. So the kingdom looks like the king, and this describes the king. And when the king is described and the kingdom is described, what does that push the people to do? Rejoice. Shout. Submit. Be thankful. Worship. Serve. Join. Imitate all the things we talk about all the time. That that's the kind of king that we have. And what does it say at the end of verse 10? His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That he's not come to rule a, a territory. That his rule will cover the entire earth. You know what verse 10 really points to? It points to his second coming. In verse 9, it talks about his, his first time on earth. That he has come to us, humble, with salvation, righteous, on a donkey. Verse 10 says, yeah, he's come to turn all of the weapons of war into like ways to till up the ground. Ways to serve one another. Ways to live in that kingdom. And his rule will be around the entire, I mean, the entire earth will be covered. So he's come to bring peace to us now, but also peace to us long term. That all the stuff that we, that we see around us, you know, we can't watch the news and, and live as though this is like all there is. We should, we should watch the news, you know, and you, you see what ISIS is doing, or you see, you know, there's just, I mean... From this city all the way around the world, there's just bad stuff happening all the time. And yet for the Christian, we know one day, that stuff's not going to happen. It doesn't have to happen now. It doesn't have to. Because Jesus has come, right? Our King has come to us and He's humbly brought salvation as the righteous one to us. I mean, He rode in on a donkey. Like, we know this has happened. It doesn't have to be the case now. And so for you and I, we can live in that kingdom now. And at the same time, we're looking forward and we know, but you know what, one day, there'll be no ISIS. There'll be, there'll be no news to watch, you know. If there's news reports on the new earth, it'll just be like, look at all the awesome stuff that God did today. That this is the kind of king that we have. One who says, hey, one day this is all going to be the case, and let's, so let's, let's drag some of that into the present today. 
That's not all about the future, but it's not also all about the present. That they overlap together. So what can we do? What do we do in the midst of difficulty of this earth? We rejoice and we shout because our King has come to us. Our cries of Hosanna have been heard. That Jesus himself came to rescue and to meet our needs and to free us from the things that bind us and invites us into this life where we cooperate with him, we work together with him, that we, we make these efforts and he empowers those things and we have this, this life that is slowly morphing and changing and transforming and the people around us watch that happen and they're like, man, I want, I want that too. And it's like, yeah, you can know Jesus as well and he's come for you as well. Like he didn't just come for me, he came for you. That's the, that's the thing. I heard someone say this on a podcast I was listening to, that the, the gospel comes to us on its way to someone else. I was like, whoa, what? The gospel comes to us on its way to someone else. That our king has ridden into town on the donkey. That he has said, I'm the one. And he's invited us into his life. And that invitation is for everyone. And so, as I said, some, sometimes, you know, sermons, you know, they're, they're different than this. This one is just a little bit of like, how about we just kind of be enamored with who our God is? Maybe the most practical thing we can do sometimes is sit in awe, you know. And just kind of shake our heads at how good He is to us. Especially when we think about how little we've done to deserve this kind of grace and goodness. And then we're just reminded that his kingdom is not one where that stuff is earned. I'm like, yeah, you can, you can do whatever. And that connection is still there. And so maybe the triumphal entry is supposed to spark all these things in us. And you know what? I bet that there were people there that day with the palm branches and the, and the cloaks who, who got it. You know, who, really, who understood it. They were like, yeah, he's, this is the real one right here. And maybe in a few days, they weren't the ones yelling, crucify him. Maybe they were weeping. Maybe they knew. And maybe when they heard that the stone wasn't there anymore, and there was all this stuff stirred up, maybe they were like, well, let's go find him. And maybe on Easter Sunday, they were seeking this resurrected Savior. And maybe a little while after that, they found him. And maybe they were a part of that group who... Heard him teach for those 40 days. And maybe they watched him go into the sky. And we're like, whoa, what's happening? And maybe they went and prayed with the disciples because that's what Jesus said to do. And maybe they were there at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. And maybe they were part of the first Christians. And maybe, uh, maybe they told people and they told people and they told people. And maybe that's why you're here. I mean, the triumphal entry could have been that. It could have had that kind of impact on people. Maybe it should have that kind of impact on us. And maybe that's the most practical thing we can do is maybe just sing, you know. Maybe just thank him. Maybe we just let him be him and us be us and that be enough. And so that's what we're going to do. No big surprise if you've been here before. We usually sing a little bit, you know, at the end. We kind of sit in it for a little bit. And so that's what we're going to do. And um, so maybe with all this in mind... Maybe our own little triumphal entry moments can happen or continue to happen.
So, why don't you stand up? Let me pray. So, take a second and just think through. Think through that passage in Zechariah. Think about the fact that your king has come for you. That he hasn't told you you've got to fight your way to get to him. That he's met you. And that he's righteous and has brought salvation to you and humbled himself and brought peace into your life today and guaranteed an eternity with him, free from all of the restraints of sin and death. Just think about that for a second.